Yeah, when you hear that riff, you know it's Biz News Radio coming live. And today, being Wednesday, the 31st of July, I'm Alec Hogg in Johannesburg. In fact, in Santon. Moved up in the world a little bit from the old days of being just in a Josie. But today, we have got a rational radio to savor. We're going to be kicking off with Gavin Montgomery. He is the, uh, he's with Wood Mac, which is the biggest and probably the most reputable energy research company in the world. We'll be talking to him from London on a report on global battery raw materials. Why does it matter for South Africa? South Africa produces a hatful of minerals, and with the move towards electric cars, there is a lot of threat uh, at palladium, and more particularly in this country's case, platinum. But on the other hand, there's big opportunities for minerals like, in particular, nickel, which we'll be finding out from Gavin Montgomery later. And uh, then we'll be pinging those ideas on to some of our further guests. After him, it's Koki Koiman, and uh, he is our go-to man, has been, in my case, for well over a decade, in fact, a couple of decades now. He works for a company called Denker Capital, which is what he started after leaving Sundam. And Corky runs a very successful international financial services fund. He is a focused on financial services, and we'll find out from him about the Nedbank retrenchments, what's going on with Ecobank, which seems to be causing a lot of Nedbank's headaches, and this whole story between Peter Moyo and Old Mutual, where Moyo was fired as the chief executive for conflict of interest, Old Mutual wanted to pull back 35 million rand that they'd paid him, or part of it, and uh, he won. He won in, co- in court, and they've had to reinstate him. So, how embarrassing. Then we'll be talking to Nick Benadel, former dean of uh, Gibbs, uh, the business school which rates highest of South African business schools, and we'll be talking to him about the public-private growth initiative. It's some very, very good news for South Africa, but something that's been kept pretty much under wraps. We'll be picking up with him on that. David Shapiro, of course, on markets. And uh, after David, the big focus of the day is on a new book written by Johan van Lochrenberg. Johan, you might remember, was the head of uh, the investigative team at South African Revenue Services. He's just written a book on the whole, what he calls, tobacco wars. And we'll be digging into that in a few, in quite a bit of detail from some of the critics of Johann Rupert. Some of the supporters, no doubt, of Rupert are uh, featured in this book as well. It's an extraordinary book. I haven't managed to do it justice yet, having just uh, received it this week and skimmed ahead of Johann's interview. But he will be giving us lots of information about that. So we really do have quite a program for you today. I hope you're going to stay with us right through for the full hour. If you can't though, um, well, life being what it is, do remember that you can pick up a rebroadcast of the full program at 5 o'clock this evening, 7 o'clock this evening, and then 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Hello, Gavin. Hello, Gavin speaking. Hi, Gavin. Hi. It's Alec Hogg. Are you ready to go on air? Uh, yes. Yep. Brilliant. Okay. Very easy stuff. Uh, um, we'll, we'll just pick up from the beginning. I'll turn the music down and away we go. 
Well, it's promised we're over to London now, and it's a warm welcome to Gavin Montgomery of Wood Mac. Uh, Gavin, I'm talking to you from South Africa. Not everybody knows about Wood Mackenzie. In a nutshell, what is it that you guys do? So we're a, a natural resources research and consulting firm. So we look at the supply and demand fundamentals of, um, um, of metals and mining and also energy resources. And you've just done a, re- a thoroughgoing research report on global battery raw materials, a long-term outlook, premised, of course, on what's happening with electric cars. Yes. So the, the really the electrification of transportation is is, is causing a, a fundamental change in the metals and mining sector because the, essentially the batteries for these uh, electric vehicles they're they use a variety of what we previously called minor metals. Um, and you know as electrification picks up, we're going to need a, a lot more of these metals. Mm. Um, Before we get into those, and of course that's of great uh, interest to people in South Africa being a mining country, how do you see the electric vehicles taking over from, uh, or its its share, the share of electric vehicles uh, as we go forward? Sure. So our expectation within Wood Mackenzie is that uh, electric vehicles um, with a plug, so that's our battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, they will account, um, rise to account for 7% of uh, passenger car sales by 2025. And that will rise further to about 13% by 2030. So 7% in 2025. Uh, and, and thereafter, is it likely that electric vehicles will take over and we won't see any internal combustion engines again? We think it will be a gradual process. Um, there's a lot of challenges, obviously, to electrification. Um, there's still the issue of range anxiety. The charging infrastructure is not there. But certainly, uh, electric vehicles will become, a, you know, a, a definitely a more important issue um, over the next decade or so. So, of the raw material inputs, who are the winners and who are the losers by this trend? Yeah, well. I think they're, they're, they're all winners, really. Uh, there's, there's a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of metals that can be used in these vehicles, but the, the key ones really, uh, unsurprisingly, lithium in a lithium-ion battery is used in these vehicles. But also uh, nickel and cobalt are both extensively used um, because really they, they're used in, the, in the, the higher power batteries, which um, electric vehicles require. What about platinum? That's a big story in South Africa with the uh, auto catalysts being used in mm-hmm. petrol engines. And if petrol engines are, are there are going to be a lot fewer of them, does that mean that platinum is, is under threat? Yeah, it's, it's probably not so good for platinum. Um, again, it's, there's, there's different schools out there in terms of penetration rates. But, um, I mean, certainly in c- combustion engine vehicles of a sort will be around for a long time to come. So... Uh, that's obviously positive for platinum and again a lot of the other technologies um, being proposed include obviously hybrid vehicles and um, uh, essentially just different ways of raising the fuel efficiency so we wouldn't say it's it's the end of the road for platinum but certainly the, the in terms of electric vehicles lithium nickel and cobalt will will do- dominate Gavin, what about fuel cells? Some motor manufacturers mm-hmm. have been going with that technology rather than uh, the battery-driven technology. How, how are you reading that? Yes, it's, it's a question we get a lot. It's definitely a competing technology, but there's still a lot of issues in terms of the cost. 
Um, the the real pioneers in terms of fuel cell vehicles for the passenger car market have been Toyota with their Mirai vehicle, but it's still very expensive compared to uh, some of the more mass market electric vehicles which are reaching the market, like the, the Tesla Model 3 or the uh, Chevrolet Bolt. So we think it will be some time before, again, fuel cell passenger car are viable for mass market. And also there's the question of the, of the infrastructure there as well. Many governments, um, certainly in Europe here, are uh, investing in electric vehicle charging infrastructure with, with fuel cells to have that hydrogen infrastructure as well. That's another large investment. And for the time being, it seems people are, people are looking at the electrification route. Mm, that's the one that seems to be winning. Which South yeah. African's homeboy, Elon Musk, Tesla, you mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> is, he, is he actually behaving himself lately his share price is still all over the place but he doesn't seem to be in the, in the news as much as he was yeah he, um i think that tesla um definitely have been ramping up their deliveries of the model 3 um certainly in overseas markets like europe so they seem to have um overcome some of the uh, earlier production challenges and, and seem to be certainly producing um large-scale uh, vehicles these days and obviously they have plans to to build a, another factory in china so um they're definitely expanding um and yeah i mean it's it's tesla still a very popular brand um but there's i would say there's obviously a lot more uh electric vehicles coming onto the market in the next couple of years from some of the more established uh, traditional auto suppliers as well so let's just go back to the premise that we started off with, which is the expansion of electric vehicles and the metals that are going to benefit as a result mm-hmm. of that. Cobalt, lithium, nickel. I, I remember listening to a webcast of the Glencore annual general meeting of a couple of years ago where mm-hmm. Ivan Glasenberg, the chief executive, was making a big play about Glencore investing heavily in these kind of uh, metals for the electric car boom. And subsequent to that, that Glencore share price reacted quite uh, positively. Are you seeing any problems? Because he was he was outlining uh, problems on supply, uh, uh, rather of demand, uh, demand exceeding supply for those particular metals, and then as a consequence, the prices shooting up. Are you seeing a similar picture unfold in in the next few years? Um, not so much in the next few years. Um, at the moment, electric vehicle sales are still relatively low at around 2%, and half of that market is, is within China. So as far as we're concerned, there's, there's, there's probably adequate supply for the next few years. It's, it's when we get out longer term, um, beyond 2025, when those electric vehicle penetration rates get to 7% and above, that's when we see um, supply demand fundamentals start to tighten, really, because Really, with the time it takes to bring on new mine supply, people need to be investing now. Uh, you know, it takes seven, eight, nine years to to finance a mine, to build it, to ramp it up to capacity. So the, the, a lot of that's not happening at the moment. So if people want to have electric vehicles in the mass market uh, 10 years from now, they need to be building the new nickel mines, the new lithium mines now. And as an investor, would it then be a good idea to do a Warren Buffett on nickel uh, stocks or nickel uh, miners, buy the share, put it in your bottom drawer, and wait for the supply crunch to hit? <laughs> I'm afraid I can't offer stock advice, but I, we, we definitely see 
uh, longer term, tighter fundamentals, particularly for cobalt and for, and for nickel. Um, it's they're they're not uh, that easy to mine and extract. Um, again, it, it, you know, historically, it's taken a long time, for example, to bring on uh, new nickel capacity. Um, there's a essentially a, a sort of dearth of good quality deposits around, and those that there are, um, again, maybe they lie in areas which uh, maybe have high levels of, uh, sort of environmental and political risk. So it's it's going, to, it's going to be a challenge to make this happen. It's not going to be smooth sailing um, by any stretch. Gavin Montgomery is with Wood McKenzie talking to us from London. Well, there's some a little bit of research, a little bit of homework for you to do. Nickel and cobalt, there's some South African miners who are involved in that area. We'll be doing uh, or, or, or pinging that idea at David Shapiro in a little while to find out what he thinks. But next up is uh, we're going to talk banking and Koki Koeman. Hello, Corky. It's me. Are you ready? Yeah. Ready, ready to go. I'm ready. Okay, yeah, we're I'm ready. ready to go. I'll just turn the music down and we're on. Well, it's lovely to pick up with uh, my old pal Corky Koiman, who introduced me to Warren Buffett. You'll—I'll have you know—it was nearly 15 years ago that I went with you, Corky, to Omaha for the first time. Ended up writing a book on the man, which sold very well. Uh, starting a portfolio, which I'm not closed now, thank heavens. Um, so, so you really have influenced my life enormously, Mr. Coyman. Are you still a regular at Berkeville? Yeah, thank you very much for those kind words, uh, Alec. Yeah, no, I'm uh, still. Uh, we went this year again, uh, and now I've got to go. Got, got to keep going to Omar each year until Charlie and or uh, Warren finally. Yeah, retire due to old age, which, which in their case, I think will be when they finally die. Isn't <laughs> so, it? Uh, isn't it yeah. 103? Didn't they say that the retirement age? Yeah, they made the mandatory retirement age 103. Uh, Charlie's getting close. Eh? It's 95 now. <laughs> Only that's from eight years ago. <laughs> well, we, we better we better keep going now because he might decide to change that retirement age. But yeah. Koki, the, the big story of the moment here in South Africa is Nedbank's 1,500 staff that are being retrenched. Now, just if, if you step away a little, and obviously you're going to unpack why they are doing this, but for a, for a person in the street, they say, but Nedbank have just, you know, they, they seem to be doing well financially. Their results seem to be okay. Uh, they, they are expanding. Why would they need to retrench people right now? 
Uh, look, I, I think it's, it's two factors. Uh, the main factor is obviously, as they say, uh, digitalization. It's, it's a new buzzword, all the fintechs, but the banks are being uh, a, attacked by more nimble, smaller players, even in South Africa, Echo Bank, uh, uh, not uh, Zero Bank. We don't come with Echo Bank, Zero Bank, and Time Bank, and Discovery Bank, and yeah. So uh, the banks are responding, all of them, by working on their technology side on the, and, and making sure they also can compete with the smaller, nimbler players. But, but the effect of that is that as you digitalize, as they call it, uh, you need fewer branches because people and the trend globally is for banking to be done on the internet or these days not even internet net via mobile apps so as you as you do that uh, your branches become less important they get smaller your your and your branches that are out of the way get closed and and i think the second factor now is in south africa where the economy has been struggling for and a, lo- a long time, and, and there's no respite in sight, that you've got to start start sharpening your pencils. And that's not only for banks, that is, that is for companies, all companies operating in South Africa, where to to generate the returns on, on capital that shareholders require, you've got to start uh, retrenching staff that, that are left behind. How, how, in, ba- how un- incomp- uncompetitive are we? And just, just to maybe put this in context, NetBank's got 30,500 people who work there. They yeah. are retrenching yeah. 1,500, yeah. so they'll presumably yeah. go down to 29,000. How would they yeah. compare with a similar-sized bank somewhere else in the world in the number of staff? Alec, uh, firstly, just by the way, on that, one th- on that 1,500, uh, that they say that due to natural attrition, they lose about uh, 1,000 uh, 1, 1,500 staff members per year. So, and by the way, they also said that their March results that, you know, after this 1,500, they'd most probably need to lose another 3,000. So, you know, but this is ongoing, like on a three-year basis. But how do we compare? Um, South African banks in terms of cost to income ratios are actually uh, fairly good, not, not top of a class, but, but in the middle. Um, and it depends on if you talk developed markets or emerging markets. So in developed markets, uh, they tend to lose, you to use fewer staff, but your people costs are a lot higher in developed markets. So we, w- we would look to be overstaffed compared to most developed market banks. If you compare to other emerging markets, those banks are still very branch based. And so, and branches are there used still to take deposits. Uh, so it all depends on, on, you know, the society in which one operates. But, but generally our banks are fairly efficient. But as I said, I think, you know, the, the, the economy that's not growing has, has forced them to look very sharply at, at the numbers. Interesting point there. So as far as cost to income ratios are concerned, South African banks not out of line. But probably got more people than other banks in the first world. However, they probably pay them a lot less. So I suppose that's the one yes. that balances the other yes. off. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Look, it's also the skill space. Remember, so you're highly skilled 
let's say your software engineers and the guys who are doing all the, 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 the software work and, and the digitalization, they obviously get paid a lot and your branch-based staff will, will get less. Now, we've seen in the PRC Commission, there's been uh, quite a focus there, or, uh, well, a lot of focus during Dan Machila's uh, testimony, uh, included in that $250 million investment the PRC made in a company called Ecobank. And you mentioned it a little earlier. Yes. And, of course, Nedbank are also big investors in Ecobank. And Ecobank, from what we read, doesn't seem to be doing that well. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> it wasn't. It seems to be turning. Um, I'm a bit far away from the action, like on day-to-day or month-to-month. But, I mean, just in terms of history, I think they took their first stake or the first agreement in 2014. The the stake that Nedbank have in Ecobank is, is just over 20%. It was bigger, but they, I think, a right decision decided to not follow their rights when Ecobank needed more capital, so they diluted a bit. And in terms of NetBank's bottom line, it is about 5% of the bottom line. But Ecobank itself uh, has a checkered track record. It's, it's, it was attractive to NetBank because it's represented in, I think it's about 28 different countries in Africa, mostly Western Africa. Uh, Nigeria is the biggest of, of all of those, 15% of, of their earnings. But the problem with those countries is they are all very volatile. And, you know, so the bad debt uh, ratios of these of these banks that they own um, have all been very high. And Nigeria has a good year, then a bad year, good year, bad year. But then I think the worst, and mostly that's what you're referring to, it was severe uh, corporate governance problems in terms of the leadership and a tussle at the top, which was resolved a year or two ago, and they actually had huge bad debts and a cleanup. Um, but, yeah, it, I think NetBank was obviously interested, you know, when everybody foresaw South Africa would grow slower, thinking that, you know, Africa will give a bit of growth to, the, to you know, to the bottom line. But I suppose for NetBank, it does help them in terms of, uh, outlet for investment banking, uh, where Ecobank is very poor in, and, and NetBank is quite good. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but but well, you are quite right. As soon as you've got an investment, and Echo, uh, NetBank and the PIC are two larger shareholders. Um, yeah, as soon as you operate in those countries, you often have corporate governance issues, and you and as a minority shareholder, you still have to stand uh, parent for it. Ouch. Uh, just to close off with Corky, uh, this whole saga between Peter Moyo and Old Mutual. <laughs> Have you got any comment on it? <laughs> uh, it, it? You know, it is incredibly sad uh, that it, it, and it's actually someone else called it yesterday, bizarre. I mean, for both parties, uh, Peter Moyo as well. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what he's trying to achieve uh, because now he's, he, he, is so-called got his job back, and he's going back to the office. If he said he's going to be there at eight o'clock this morning, what do you do? I mean, the breach of, of trust is there, a breach of confidence. Uh, surely you're not going to sit in on meetings. Uh, what are they going to do? They're going to give an office somewhere on the fifth floor there at, at Bindens, where you sit away from everybody else. <laughs> uh, it's it's just very sad. Also, from the board, I don't know how the board handled it. Uh, you know how he was appointed, why he was appointed. You know, uh, yeah, it's and it um, it's a mess. It's and it 
in terms of the board and the management team are taking their eye off the ball, and that's that's a risk now for of mutual. Yeah, and the share prices reacted accordingly. You imagine the, the court judgment had knocked five percent off the shares. But you used to work at yeah. Old Mutual many years ago. I, I spent ten very very happy years there, and it and and it's always been. Look, when I talk to Ian Kirk and Johan van Sale and the guys, you know, they would always say Old Mutual is a formidable opponent on the life side and. You know, even in my time, you know, your, your best actuaries always used to go there. It was a good training school. It's a very good, you know, the, the, the core business is very good. And, and that's even, you know, if you look from the years of Michael Levette when they took all the money offshore, uh, and wasted it there, the capital allocation of the, the returns that have been generated has, has been poor. But, but the core business is sound and, and one must just hope that all these shenanigans don't affect, you know, the core of mutual business. Well, a fish does rot from the head, unfortunately, and uh, we're seeing some pretty rotten stuff happening there at Old Mutual with the chief executive and the board fighting each other. It's paid 35 million rand last year, which also seems mm, he might be good, but is anybody that good? And then uh, losing Old Mutual losing the court case, so as a consequence, the chief executive who they fired has uh, gone back to his desk, as Corky says, but what does he do? doesn't look like that's over by a long chalk. We're going to talk a little in a, in a moment now uh, to Nick Benadel about some happy news for the country. And boy, don't we just need it. Well, it's a warm welcome to Nick Benadel. Nick, sure, that's uh, Johnny Clegg playing in the background there. Um, a huge loss to the country, and uh, one hopes that uh, we don't forget his legacy of love and tolerance, which he tried to preach. I know you are someone like Johnny Clegg, doing your bit, continuing to serve. Uh, after stepping down as the Dean of Gibbs, you got yourself pretty involved in trying to sort the country out. The, the, just take us a little bit backwards, though, to this public-private growth initiative that you are really um, intimately involved with. Where does it come from? Uh, Alec, this uh, came about um, after the president's first Sona speech. You know, he's had three in January of 2018, and he put in the phrase about Tumamina. And uh, Johan van Sale, who's the CEO of Toyota in Europe, uh, Africa and the Middle East, uh, got hold of Rolf Meyer and a few of us to say, what should we be doing and, and how can we to Mamina? And he brought the idea to us of working at sectoral level. So uh, we went to the president with uh, some sectors in mind and he challenged us to broaden that uh, from three, the initial three to 10. And we've ended up with 23 sectors in the project. So the project was really initiated in April of 2018. It took a bit of a while to get going. It was allocated to the presidency, and we then had some very productive meetings with both the minister and the DG, and then we broadened it to engagements with the economic cluster, the DGs, and a number of ministers. And in September, we had a major session with the president and 
I think about 20 members of the cabinet to talk this thing through. So, so let's just go back a little. 2018, Cyril has his State of the Nation address. We're all in Ramaphoria. He says, Tumamina, Johan von Sale, of, uh, who, who's a South African, clearly, who runs Toyota in Europe, a huge job over there, says, you've you got to do something about it, Nick. You, Rolf Mayer, get on your bicycles, start uh, working. You were looking at three sectors. Uh, to do what within those three sectors? Because now if you've expanded them to more than 20, presumably it's a lot more work. Right. So, it, it, I mean, he's been an integral part of it, uh, even though he's based overseas and has had a number of meetings with us and given many good ideas. I think his main insight to us was to work at, at sector level rather than the whole national economy and to look at particular inhibitors that were being caused between government and business where we could work on trying to uh, remove them in some or other way over time to get the urgently needed domestic investment happening. Of course, we all know the president initiated his foreign investment team, uh, which has been working away for some time and led to the investment summit, which will be repeated this year. This is about domestic investment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is a lot of work. We're all volunteers to uh, facilitating these dialogues. What's been very striking is the very constructive response we've had uh, from government, both politically at, at cabinet level, but also as importantly, if not more importantly, at the DG level. So we've had a number of dialogues uh, with government that are industry specific. Uh, we sometimes all meet together, but often, them, often they are bilateral meetings where the sector is trying to identify some of the hurdles. And in the re- most recent sign the president referred to some 12, if I remember correctly, projects that we've put to him. On paper, uh, there's a huge amount of investment, as we all know, uh, companies are sitting on their cash, and there's a huge amount of investment potential. So although we haven't really got to the takeoff point yet, uh, there have been very, very constructive discussions. So uh, let me just get this right. Johan van Sael, being Toyota, understands how the Japanese do things. Has he, did Correct. he draw on that? Is that what Absolutely. What he put together a very interesting process model of how they reach consensus. And the example he used in our first meeting was the Japanese Olympics. Our government simply called industry together and allocated tasks for them to make sure that, uh, that, that they would have a fantastic event, which, of course, they did. So, so we've had a very good response from the private sector as well and the industry associations. In a way, I think it's partly got the momentum it has, which we need to maintain, because we've not gone into the normal chambers and structures. It's been, we've been able to have very frank discussions at DG level uh, or DDG level, director, deputy director level, about very specific things. So kind of pulling in the, in the, in the same direction, probably for the first time in some while. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, the, the response we had, I think often very frustrated DGs who are really trying to get things done, is that this is a fresh approach and it was a face-to-face engagement. You know, very often what happens in chambers of business, there's a hierarchy and they do have summits and talk, but they tend to be quite general. These are quite particular, very often, quite particular areas. Here's a problem at the port. Here's a problem uh, around tourism, as we all know, around the visas, which we've not made enough progress on. But they were quite specific, sectoral specific uh, uh, inhibitors that we identified jointly. 
Nick, sometimes when you just sit across the table from somebody that you haven't engaged with before and you have a common interest, magic happens. Are you seeing yes. any magic going on here? Is there, is, is, are, well, are, are, any, are, are scales falling from certain eyes? I, I think both sides realize that there's such a critically important, this is such a critically important moment. We are suffering from no growth. And in a fragile new democracy like ours, you know, if we don't generate growth, we really are going to get into very serious problems. And growth, of course, mainly comes from fresh investment, especially the restructuring of our economy, which is so desperately needed, both in terms of transformation, but also in terms of the new economy. And so there is an appetite amongst people to say, let's start again. You know, we had years of difficult engagement. So many CEOs have said to me, it's been impossible to get hold of a minister for years and years on a particular issue they face. And, of course, it's not all one-way traffic. We had to make sure that our bona fides were good and that we weren't coming just to plonk uh, projects on the table that weren't going to make a difference to employment. They had to be spatially useful also uh, because our economy is so skewed in the major cities and so on and so on. So mm-hmm. I think there's been a, a reasonable meeting of minds, but it's still very early days. You know, what's astonishing is how complex some of these things are. They're simple for, to identify. But very often the problem is in multiple ministries or at multiple levels, national, provincial and local. How, and so some of these are quite complicated. How long does it take when you make a decision at that level? So now we're talking presidential level. How long does it take for that to hit the, where, where the tech well, is at Well, that's a, a very interesting question. You know, I, I remember when I was a youngster looking at thinking about how powerful chief executives must be. They must be like generals where they issue an order and immediately it gets followed. And I discovered it's not quite so in companies, it's less so in government. Because government is essentially very bureaucratic in nature. It's astonishingly rules-driven. The PFMA and other requirements make it very difficult. And I think there's been a bit of, um, let me say, hesitancy to make dramatic decisions. If I study the Asian economies, we're just doing some research on the entrepreneurial states in Asia, Government really led the growth of those economies. We haven't seen big, decisive projects. If you go back to the 1950s, when the National Party uh, developed its industrial park system of Thunder Bale and so on, these were big, bold decisions where the Eskims and Iskors and so on were enabled to become major state-owned enterprises made a difference. We live in a different kind of economy now, so it may not be about those kinds of investments, but it certainly is about building capacity and making sure that the systems that get in the way of us doing business are, are where they're reasonable to be dealt with, can be dealt with. Nick Benadel, the former um, Dean of Gibbs, who is intimately involved in the Public-Private Growth Initiative, as he said, borrowed from Japan, so best practices coming over to South Africa there, and they are making progress. It's, uh, it's not going to happen overnight, but the right decisions for the future are certainly being made. Haha, there we go. All right, David, I'm going to I'm going to get straight in here. Let's uh, okay. put it on. 
Well, our David Chabiro, as promised, is with us um, here just around the half of the hour. David, it's quite interesting to notice that uh, a lot of people seem to take their lunch hour at about 12.30 because suddenly we get uh, an, an uptick in the number of people who are tuning in to, uh, to Rational Radio, although it might actually be a David Shapiro factor. Uh, no, I, 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 no, I think it's lunch hour. You think it's lunch, think hour. lunch hour? Lunch hour extends from half past 12 to 1, or to 2 probably. Oh. Uh, extended a little, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in Melrose Arch here, so I monitor the crowds, and you see, uh, I always try to sneak early. I think that's why, if you want to go to Woolworths and that, you want to beat the crowds, but uh, that's a crowd, of, you know, that's the busiest time, 12.30. So, all right. So, all, all restaurants have. Mm. We've got people with this. I wish it mm. was me, yeah. Uh, well, they've got, they got the earplugs in now, sitting there having their, having their Woolworths, <laughs> which they went to earlier to, to beat the crowd, <laughs> and they're going to hear what David Shapiro thinks about old music. Mutual and Peter Moyer. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what a mess. Well, it is a mess. And uh, it's irreparable. Uh, you know, you can't, he can't go in there and walk in as though nothing has happened. And uh, first of all, the board's against him. So have you been following? Have be, you been following this I, whole? The, I have been following. Give us a, a give us a, a, an understanding it, of what's going on. It's a very interesting story. You know, as I'd like to prepare these things because I've got, got to go back in my brain and try and you know make it coherent. But uh, there's a very interesting factor where this all came about is that Old Mutual had preference shares in uh, Peter Moyer's uh, business, and um, one of, one of the factors is that. Um, you ha- sorry, also Old Mutual owns preference shares. One of the factors and where all these arose is that you must first pay out preference shareholders before you pay a dividend to yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay, in other words, that's preference share is equity capital and it it ranks just above equity. They it's are preferred, preferred yes. shares, preferred well, to the ordinaries, aren't they? Exactly. That's what it says. So mm. if you gain to pay a dividend, you must first pay the dividend on the preferred before you can pay on the ordinaries. And I think he breached this maybe once or twice or a number of ways. And in other words, where there was money, uh, money in his, his empowerment vehicle, uh, he paid out dividends before paying out old news. And I think that's the source of the, uh, you know, of the, transgressions or the, uh, in other words, that there was a bit of a conflict of interest. He was more interested in his own business than in paying out, uh, the, you know, the shareholders of the people who supported him. So that, that comes down to it. So you must understand those factors. Now, of course, this obviously has led to a lot of tensions uh, down the line. Um, but where where you have this kind of management standoff, you know, with the board of directors, someone has something has to give. I think he's going to come back and uh, negotiate a bigger package because I think he's probably lost the trust and faith of a lot of people, you know, of of the masses of uh, of mutual employees, etc. So I think it's going to be very hard for him to, you know, these accusations are difficult to defend and somewhere down the line, um, I think he's going to find pressure on himself. So the best thing is to do say, okay, listen, let's come to an arrangement, pay me out, which is I think what he wants and that's it. But it's not doing mutual any good. Sure. And, you know, for him to fight, at the end of the day, he's going to affect the legacy of that business, which I don't know, 150 years old plus, could even be more than that. But this uh, this guy got thirty five million bucks last year. Yeah, uh, for, and how uh, he must he must be a magic. What did you say about Gary Porritt once? Oh, by the way, do you know Gary Porritt's in in Sun City? He's in jail. 
Did they finally arrest him? They finally arrested him, yeah. I can't yeah. Now, I heard this from my pals down in KZN. They said, do you know that uh, Porritz, he's probably listening to us know. right now. Yeah, yeah. he's, he's, uh, he's behind oh. bars at last. Um, but I remember you saying when we were looking at the Tigon accounts once, you said, this guy's a magician because he's making big profits, but there's no cash to back it up. <laughs> uh, was, was, is Peter Moyer that good no. that they would, they would do this for him? No, this is mutual. No, this is mutual. So uh, you're talking about um, you know, a major business in South Africa, one of the oldest. And I think, I think his package, what, Alec, what disturbs me? And I think, there's a there's there's a bigger story behind this, is that his first instant, in other words, you can see from his the way that he acted, that there was more interest in his own investment vehicle, even though it's an empowered vehicle, you know, his own investment, rather than focusing on the business of old mutual. So that's where the conflict is. And it's always an important issue. You know, you've got to ask your management, where is their, where, where's, where's their love? You know, where is their, uh, focus. relationship? The focus on their own wealth or on leaving a legacy. And in this case, uh, it's obvious that it was on his own wealth and you know, own enrichment. But surely and he's blowing it now, Dave, because as Warren Buffett uh, reminded mm-hmm. us continuously, uh-huh. Mm. When you, you can steal from me, you can you can uh, yeah. swear at me, but the minute you touch my reputation, I'm going to be back on you well, like he, a, a pile of bricks. And his reputation, he, where's his reputation after all this? It's gone. No, it's gone. It's finished. And that's why he can't go back to mutual. Do you know what I mean? He can't go back there. He can't. Uh, and, and I've got respect for Trevor Manuel. I don't think he's a man who harbors any bitterness. He was a good servant of South Africa. Um, always loyal. And, and I, one could say that for Maria Ramos as well. Um, she got a nice job at EPSA. But I think along the line in those years in the 90s and that, they were, uh, she was a very, very important part in Treasury and so on. But I think they've always had South Africa at their heart. And I think when he took over Mutual now, um, I, you know, I'm not going to challenge his, his loyalties or what he stood for. For his integrity, so, yeah. For mm. his integrity. Mm. Yeah, so you remember. I think, I think Remember, yeah. he was the guy who drove the uh, uh, the stick into Mutual's eye and all the yeah. life insurance eye after people were getting very poor payouts. And he, he was finance minister at the time, and he ensured that they had to change the system so people got uh, – investors were better and more fairly treated. Yeah. yeah. No, mm. But I think that's he's, – he's part of a group of people. And I think you might put – you know, regardless of where we are today, there was a whole – uh, you know, there, there were very strong people at, in the 90s, um, you know, in South Africa, in Treasury, Jill Marcus, uh, you, you know, one can even include Proven Gordon, Trevor Manuel and so on. So I, I, I stand behind Trevor Manuel and I stand behind what he claims to have found. But um, he wants to get mutual back on, you know, on its feet, and uh, uh, this is just going to thwart any kind of effort. Yes. And I think shareholders will find it. You know, we back. We're at a 52-week low. In other words, we haven't moved on since they um, since they split or uh, came back to South Africa. So it's it's yeah, and then people are going to feel this pressure. And I think Peter Moyer, the right thing for him to do is to say, okay, listen. Uh, this is irreparable. You know, we're not going to retrieve the issue. Let's let, let me go, and and I want to pay out. Okay, they'll pay him out. You know, which is I think what he's trying to do. Now. That's what it's about, Go, isn't try, it? It's that's money. all. That's all it's about at the moment. It's all money. How many people work at Old Mutual, Dave? 
Oh, I don't know. Them, the whole of Cape Town. Ten, <laughs> tens of thousands, <laughs> surely. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if you take them yeah. around, if you take the number of offices that they have working for them around the country, you know, in every major city, there's a mutual branch, which has a, a lot of financial planners or people involved in the investment industry. So there must be thousands of people that work for, you know, that work for mutual. And there, there are, I mean, it's a hugely, um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's a massive business. So <laughs> yeah, you, you're putting all these people's earnings power, earning power at, uh, at risk. You, you're also giving them a heck of a time at the family bry or the family lunch yeah. or, you know, people <laughs> say cheap as you work for that guy. Wow. Yeah, anyway, uh, uh, Dave, just to close off with on personal finance live yesterday, we had a question about Capco. I'm sure you'll remember Capco. That was part of Donnie Gordon, Capital yes. Counties, part yes. of Donnie Gordon. Oy. They're now splitting. The sh- they're splitting it into oh, Covent oh. Garden and uh, and um, Earl's Court. Oh. The Covent Garden operations alone are worth nearly double the current share price. And I see the yep. shares are down 5% today. It's, they, they value it at 2.6, uh, Covent Garden at 2.6 billion, billion pounds. Uh, pounds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is about double the price that it's at. We've come under enormous pressure. Remember Liberty Holdings split into Capco and into. Mm-hmm. And Capco was Earl's Court and uh, Covent Garden. Into was all the retail outlets and that. But Into today has come fallen by 25%. Alec, the share, why well, I'm mentioning it because it's dragging down Capco as well, Hammerson. So all the, all the property businesses in the UK are starting to feel the pressure of Brexit. And you know, with no solution in mind, um, I think, uh, uh, those companies are on, under a lot of pressure. Into today is, uh, sorry, Capco's down another four or five percent today, into 25 percent on some really poor numbers. And Hammerson also on very poor numbers continues to fall. So, um, we keep trying to call the bottom. And, uh, we try, you know, one, one believes that there's got to be value in Capco at these kind of levels. One thing stabilized, but it looks like there's more of a rough ride ahead before we get that stability in the market. But if you're a long-term investor, uh, if they you offered make, you, you, if they offered you, you Covent Garden, to, you know, if they offered you Covent Garden at half price, you're going to make millions of pounds, dollars, rands, whatever you want. If you've got the patience to hang, to, you know, to, to ride this one out, uh, there's got to be value because London will never lose its appeal. You're going to still find tourists wanting, wanting to go to, you know, the Buckingham Palace and the various other attractions that, that London has. And one of the big attractions very close to Buckingham Palace down in, um, where is it at, uh, Oxford Circus is, uh, is, is Capco's Covent Garden. It's a huge, huge area and a very, very popular retail area. So uh, you'll make money, but, uh, uh, be patient, but you've got to be seriously patient. <laughs> David Shapiro, as always, bringing us up to date on the markets. And coming up in just a moment, Johan van Lochrenberg.
Hello, Johan. Hello. Hello, Johan. It's Alec. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. And how are you? Excellent, excellent. Thanks. Okay, you ready to go? Ready to chat? Line's good? Yes. Hmm. Yes. Okay, perfect. I'll just turn the music down and then and then we're on. Well, a very appropriate uh, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes track there. Johan van Lachrenberg joins us now, and uh, the author of a brand new book which blows the, well, it's going to blow your mind, everything you thought you knew about the tobacco industry, Johan Rupert, BAT, Remgro, is uh, probably not quite what you thought it was. And uh, Johan, you, this is your third book. In fact, the first one was one that you wrote with Adrian Lackey about the so-called rogue unit at SARS. Yes, hello, uh, Alec, and hello to your listeners. You, you must apologize um, me for my voice. I've got uh, a bout of the flu, so I'm going to sniffle and blow my nose in between. But, yes, the first book was the story of a, of a small investigative unit um, within the South African Revenue Service that had been tarnished uh, through the media for several years, since 2014, um, and it was basically the only platform, you know, to, to get the truth out there. So I, I wrote that book together with a former colleague of mine, Adrian Lacay. He was the, the head of communications uh, at the institution at the time. Um, <clears throat> the second book was, was more a book, uh, sort of like a, a trip down memory lane covering key investigative uh Cases and prosecutions in the in the in the period 1998 to 2014, when the revenue service um, was operating at its uh, you know at its height. Um, so it's it's more short stories with with perhaps a few um, uh, bigger stories uh, thread in between them. Um, this third book, uh, Tobacco Wars, is is a little bit different in that. I'm writing it as a complete outsider, and um, there, there are touch points in respect of the revenue service and other law enforcement agencies and intelligence services, but only to the to the extent that that overlaps with why uh, I make the case that certain people uh, initially uh, from the tobacco industry attacked the South African Revenue Service. And how that initial attack was then capitalized upon by various groupings and various people for nefarious purposes. Um, and I think the reader can connect the dots. I don't make allegations. I, I put the facts there. You do indeed. And it's, it's a complicated and a complex story. But it's, uh, I, I'm, I've yet to find a hero. Uh, in the book, I've read, I was enthralled last night, reading obviously the early parts where uh, you were on top of things, you had the industry on the ropes, and then suddenly you were pulled out, the whole investigative unit was closed down, and those who were making money out of fraud or, or tax fraud on tobacco uh, had, a, had a free reign, and you do explain why that happened, but at, at the time, you must have gone through all kinds of conflicts in your mind. You mean at the point when everything started going south? Well, here you are. You've, you've spent years building cases. You've uh, spent years yeah. infiltrating, getting to a point where you finally now are, 
are starting to nail some very big companies for uh, tax or customs, uh, avoiding paying tax on cigarettes. And just as you're about to do the, uh, do the, well, I suppose, put people in jail, it all ends for you. Yes, look, I think, um, I mean, I was the first individual person that they came for. Um, that was around May 2014. Um, I certainly knew in my heart that, uh, you know, this is a door that's going to open up and going to be very difficult to close again. But um, at that stage, because it was only directed at me, I think other people didn't necessarily see the, the, the red flags that I that I list in, in one of the later chapters that I consider to be red flags, you know, where certain warnings came my way from people within the intelligence services who said, look, uh, they're coming for you. Um, people from the crime intelligence uh, environment um, started speaking about heads are going to roll at SARS. A sitting cabinet minister sent a warning to say, you are all going to be chased out of the revenue service. You're going to be humiliated. You must never be believed again. So all of those things sort of added up. And, and, and whilst that was going on, there were these odd break-ins at, you know, most of our homes. And the things that had been stolen were laptops and memory sticks and hard drives and valuable things were left. So I, I certainly knew we were up against something a little bit more sinister than than a mere tax evader that you know is unhappy or and, and in dispute with mm. the revenue service. Are there any heroes in all of this? <laughs> Look, I you know, I make the point in the book that there are no angels in the tobacco industry whatsoever. So nobody must misunderstand me on that. But I I use the analogy of um, you know you get you get the bag snatchers and the muggers um, and then you get the bank robbers and to effectively combat those crimes you need to uh, focus on the muggers, the bag snatchers and the bag rob- bank robbers you cannot just you know, focus all your attention on the, the muggers and the bag snatchers and try and lock them up for jaywalking when they run across the street while the bank is getting robbed around the corner. And that, that is really the approach that we took in, in terms of that project that's quite well known now called Project Honey Badger. We very deliberately looked at different taxpayer types, in other words, from big to small, and all the people along the value chain not just the manufacturers, but we started at the um, in the primary sector with um, agriculture. And um, at the same time, we looked at all tax types. So we didn't only look at smuggling and illicit manufacturing, but we also looked at payroll taxes, corporate taxes, value-added tax, and so on. So it was a, the, the, the design of Honey, Honey Badger was, was a matrix and it was a fairly complex matrix. Um, and I, I used the, I used the example of a, of a waterbed. Um, you know, if you, if you squeeze on, on one corner of the waterbed, it, it pushes the, 
the water to the other side and it bulges up on the other end. So what you need to do when you, when you take a whole of industry um, approach is you've got to put equal pressure on the entire waterbed. Otherwise, you're just shifting the problem. Hmm. Um, you know, Johan, yeah. uh, I met with Yusuf Kaji, who appears in your book. Uh, I think there's a whole chapter on him. And I met yeah. with him in London, and he admitted to me that he, yes, he did cheat. On, he didn't pay yeah. the taxes that he should have paid. But he said, yeah. uh, in his defense, he said everyone was doing it. And, in fact, the big guys were doing it much, much worse, British American tobaccos, etc., than he was. They were, they were yeah. cheating in billions and billions of, of uh, rands, according to him. He, we did an interview. It was so uh, libelous and outrageous. And I don't have uh, enough money, I think, to sit in, in court for the next 10 years. But he made some huge allegations, which, to a degree... You support in your book. Yes, look, um, I think I describe Mr. Kaji as somebody colorful, um, which he certainly is. Um, he's, he's, he's got no qualms in, uh, in, in, in and he's, he's, I quote him in the book uh, to say, you know, that um, he uses that when he speaks to me, he uses the term half pregnant. He's got no qualms to admit to um, wrongs of the of the past, um, <clears throat> but he he in a way makes the same point that I'm making, which is um, by all means, you know, if Mr. Kanji is up to no good, you should hold him accountable for that. But don't only hold him accountable while the bank is getting robbed on you know on another side of the street. Is anybody looking at the bank? Is anybody investigating there? Uh, In other words, the big guys. The big guys. Is anybody? Is the attention on the big guys? We understand the use of kajis and and yes. uh, carny links, tobacco, and uh, Mazzotti, who has the misfortune of saying that Julius Malema is his friend. I mean, that's a red rag to a political bull. But uh, apart from that, again, you make the point that the big corporations, as Kaji has made, uh, are the ones who who need to be looked at. Are they being looked at? Look, I, you know, one of the limitations in the book for me is that I, I'm not allowed to say things that are not public knowledge. Um, and I can only speak for my time at the Revenue Service, which ended in February 2015. Um, I think that my, my example of the waterbed should speak to your question somewhat. In other words, we try to squeeze on all parts of the waterbed, and the waterbed would include big, medium, small, and everybody down the value chain. The one uh, multinational that did publicly state and confirm that they were um, uh, undergoing a a full-scale audit by the Revenue Service was British American Tobacco South Africa. In the media in April 2014, so they, they confirmed that. Um, and that's about as much as I can say, you know, publicly. So just join the dots from that side. Uh, d- just to close off with Johan, Martin Wingate Pierce was in court, or he had a uh, a court case against Pravin Gordon uh, about the whole rogue unit. He was kicked out last week in a very scathing judgment against him. What does this mean for people like you who've had your names besmirched, who've who've uh, who've had 
the evaders, avoiders, the, the tax cheats, if you like, uh, being able to postpone at the very least uh, their, their payments. What does that court judgment mean in those two aspects? Huh. Um, look, I think um, Mr. Wingate Pierce acted on very bad legal advice. Um, that's my starting point. Um, but once you once you're on a roll, it's very difficult to to sort of climb off that horse. Um, <clears throat> the second thing is the the issue around the unit is still very much before our courts. So I wouldn't want to sort of venture into it too much because there's been a recent finding by our public protector, which has found this unit to have been unlawfully established, which which is being contested by everybody. What I can say, which which I found um, rather um, uh, something little a little bit positive um, that I saw yesterday uh, evening, is a, a press statement issued by the the Fair Independent Tobacco Trade Association (FITA). I don't know if you're familiar with them at all. Uh, they, they're the little guys, are they? Yeah, they basically represent. I think most of the local manufacturers in South Africa, excluding the multinationals, that they belong to another um, grouping called the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting in that um, uh, press release that they released yesterday, and I suppose it's, you know, as a consequence of, of the book um, and what's contained in the book, is that there is an acknowledgement, which is unreservedly so, put out by them that there were wrongs in the past and they, without reservation, apologized to the South African Revenue Service and its officials, past and former, as well as people that have been affected by the events of 2014. And they then uh, go a little bit further and they describe it to the fact that what they call, in quotes, agents of influence who led them down the garden path. And if you read my book, you'll see exactly who they are. Um, and the common denominator between all those so-called agents of influence is that they not only served their masters that were multinational uh, tobacco manufacturers, but they were very, very close, closely intertwined with um, law enforcement and intelligence operatives. Hmm. Brilliant. Well, if you aren't going to buy uh, Tobacco Wars after that, then I don't know where your curiosity is, Jan. Before we finish, we had a couple of questions coming through. Uh, the one yes. was from uh, Denver Farage, who said, the advocate Muzi Sikakani, who represented Zuma at the Zondo Commission, is he the same one who chaired the Internal Rogue Unit Commission? Is he the same person? It's the same person whose, whose name is attached to the panel. There were, in fact, three advocates, and he was the, the lead advocate of the panel and uh, a law firm that instructed them. And it's wrong to describe the report as the rogue unit report because, in fact, when you look at its um, terms of reference, at that stage when they were constituted in September 2014, there were no allegations of such a unit. If you have a close look at their paragraph 57, you will see where where everything turned um, completely for that panel. Mm-hmm. But it is uh, the same guy. 
but it's the same person. And then Johan Oudendahl wanted to know, I don't know if you can help on this one, why is it so difficult to pay VAT on e-filing? <laughs> I have no idea. Because Barry Hawes left, perhaps? <laughs> Look, I, from what I can see, and I'm a tax practitioner myself, I, I've been having a few difficulties with the system um, recently. Um, but I think it's all part of the hangover of the last few years. And, you know, my my view is um, when something is broken but not completely broken, is we must just understand and, and be a little bit patient and allow people to, you know, service the car and, and, and get it back up and running. Um, Has anyone asked you to go back and service the car at SARS? <laughs> no, I have no interest in doing so. I I've done my bit. There are really good people still at that institution. And, you know, uh, it was always the ethos at the Revenue Service to make sure that people grow. And people did grow in our time. And it's their time to shine now. But I'm a phone call away if they, if they want to have a cup of coffee, get some ideas, bounce ideas off with me, by, by all means. But um, my family and I have been too traumatized by the ordeal, I'm not prepared to put them through anything like that again. And it's not over yet. Um, it's still how, ongoing. How do you so, mean it's not over yet? What what happens now? Well, there's a there's a there's a there's a criminal matter where um, the former deputy commissioner of the Revenue Service, Island Pillay, uh, myself, and the, the the first manager of uh, that small investigative unit have been charged for some vague event that uh, apparently happened somewhere in 2007, which I have no knowledge of, but that's a prosecution that's been dragging on for a year now. And I've spent my life savings in five applications to try and get the complete docket out of them, and I still don't have access to the complete docket. So that's one matter. And the second matter relates to the recent report issued by the public protector, which is now before courts. Johan van Lochrenberg, uh, the author of Tobacco Wars. It's a riveting book, and as I said earlier, it'll change a lot of your perceptions and ideas about what happens in the uh, tobacco industry in South Africa. Well, that has been uh, our edition of Rational Radio for this week. Uh, you can, if you only joined us late, you can pick up the full program on the rebroadcast this evening at 5 o'clock, again at 7 o'clock, and again at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. But from me, Alec Hogg, until the next time, cheerio. Hello, Johan. Hi. Ah, you can still hear me. Okay, brilliant. Thank yeah. you very, very much, Johan. That was I'm sorry, I'm not very good at uh, interviews.